Our reading this morning comes from 1 Timothy uh, chapter 6, verses 7 through 10. For we brought into nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out. If we have food and clothing, we will be content with these. But those who want to be rich fall into temptation, a trap, and many foolish and harmful desires, which plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And by craving it, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Will you pray with me? Father, these verses are hard. And I bet not a soul here today has not been convicted in some capacity. Out of our feelings of emptiness and numbness, we long to possess riches, fame, or influence, thinking that they will satisfy. Forgive us for falling into that trap, Father. Forgive us for making much of mankind's creation and little of you. Through your spirit and through the proclamation of your word, set us free from the trap of foolish and harmful desires. Bring glory to yourself by aligning our will with yours. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. If you have a Bible, please go ahead and turn to the book of Ecclesiastes. The book of Ecclesiastes. For those of you who are new or visiting this morning, my name is Ryan, and I'm one of the pastors here. And over the past three weeks, we've taken a break from walking through a book in the Bible and are actually doing a short uh, topical series called Resilient that is challenging us to look at the competing worldviews that seek to overthrow our Christian or our biblical worldview. Now, these worldviews can either be overt or subtle. They can be overt in that we recognize them exactly for what they are, or they can be subtle in that they sometimes infiltrate our lives and we don't even realize it. So the one thing that we need to recognize from these worldviews is that each of them, in their own way, try to goad us into forsaking God, forsaking His Word, or even forsaking His community. And so we need to be aware of what is happening. This is in part why we are doing this series. We need to be aware of what is happening and what we as Christians are both called to do and think in light of these competing worldviews. We are ultimately seeking to do, as Paul said in 2 Corinthians 10, and demolish arguments and every proud thing that is raised up against the knowledge of God, and we take every thought captive to obey Christ. That is the goal of this series and what we are trying to inform and instruct us in collectively. So this week, we turn our hearts and our minds to the subject of consumerism. Yes, I said that right. I am tasked with preaching on the subject of consumerism during the week in which all of us struggle with it and nobody wants to talk about it. So real quick, let me give you three quick reasons why you're all plagued by consumeristic hearts and minds and why you never see a U-Haul behind a hearse. I'm kidding. That's not helpful, nor does it offer us much hope. And we need hope during these days. And we need right thinking. We need right living. We need biblical thinking and biblical living. Because if we're being completely honest, consumerism is so much of the very air that we breathe in the Western world that sometimes we don't even recognize it for what it is. So what is it? Consumerism, in part, if I can give you a definition, is a never-ending desire to possess material goods and to achieve personal success. A never-ending desire to possess or to achieve. Others have described it as having rather than being. In other words, your worth, whether it be your satisfaction in life or your own self-esteem or even your own identity, is now measured by what you have instead of who you are. 
it tempts us to find our worth and our satisfaction in something other than God. You see, this is all a warping of what happened. God made us originally as consumers, and he placed us in the garden to cultivate and to grow and to, yes, consume for enjoyment. This was a good thing. But then with the fall, our consumeristic tendencies have changed. We believed that subtle lie from Satan, surely you won't die if you just take. Yet the taking now knows no bounds. Fast forward to today, to our busy culture that seeks to consume everything, and nothing has really changed since the fall. Life is now about what we have and own as we seek to always find fulfillment in something. And what's the result of this? I think we end up drowning out Jesus' anchoring promise to us in Matthew 28 when he said, And behold, I am with you always. We get distracted from that truth and seek to find something else or someone else to be with us always. And that's the sad part about it all. In the definition I gave, I said consumerism is the never-ending desire to possess material goods and to achieve personal success. Possessing material goods in and of itself is not a bad thing. Personal success in and of itself is a good thing. But now that all-consuming desire has taken over, and now it is the end-all, be-all of our society. And so it really is the very air that we breathe, the very water that we swim in. If you talk with any uh, missionaries who either grew up somewhere else or are returning on a sabbatical, they definitely recognize it. They recognize it in the airport as they're greeted as the incessant advertising to look thinner or stronger or more beautiful. The commercials when they watch TV to buy this or that in order to make your life easier or more enjoyable. And we are giving in. As of 2017, Americans collectively now owe more than $1 trillion in credit card debt. And so we are bombarded. Take this. Join that club, buy this, spend on that, all for the sake of finding joy and purpose and satisfaction and something to distract us from the busyness of our lives. Because that's the lie that consumerism and really any worldview wants to promise you. This is the ticket. This is the item. This is how you should think about X, Y, or Z. And this is how you find meaning and happiness. We end up, when we give in to consumerism, we end up becoming like the drug addict who needs just one more hit for pleasure. So we need just one more thing, one more piece of clothing, one more gadget, one more of something to feel content. Until, as we all know, a few days or weeks or months or maybe even a year later when our new thing is now an old thing and the same old cycle starts over again. And it's a temptation for all of us in various ways. You are going to know how your heart is most tempted by the trappings of consumerism. Sure, you might not always have to have a new car, but it might be something else for you. You're going to know and need to examine your own heart. But at the very least, we need to be aware of how it has infiltrated our society, and as we're going to come to see, sadly, many of our churches. But in the midst of this, as I said earlier, we do have hope. And praise God, we do have hope. You see, the beauty of the gospel is that your worth and your satisfaction are now found in Christ alone. And this frees you to recognize that your delight in God only grows as you come to understand that God is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in him. 
And then when you realize that, and then you're seeking to do, as it says in Colossians 3, and set your mind on the things above, not that which is on earth. When those things are taking place, then, my friends, you have a very strong foundation in which you can resist the pulls and the temptations and the trappings of consumerism. The reality is, in the midst of these worldviews, the gospel of Jesus Christ has something to say about every single area of your life, including how and why we consume things. So as I said, we will primarily be in the book of Ecclesiastes this morning, chapter 5. As I've mentioned before in a previous sermon, this is my favorite Old Testament book, so when a passage isn't uh, assigned, I tend to gravitate towards it. I'm weird like that. But I do believe that God's wisdom speaks to us through the ages. His word is timeless. And because there, in many senses, is truly nothing new under the sun, I want us to see how his word speaks to us concerning this subject of consumerism. So Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 10 through 12. The one who loves silver is never satisfied with silver, and whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with income. This, too, is futile. When good things increase, the ones who consume them multiply. What then is the profit to the owner except to gaze at them with his eyes? Verse 12. The sleep of the worker is sweet, whether he eats little or much, but the abundance of the rich permits him no sleep. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for the hope that we have in Christ this week. God, I thank you for your word and that it speaks to us. Humble our hearts now to listen from it and to what you have to say to us. May we recognize that the gospel of Jesus Christ sets us free from the trappings of consumerism. Christ, then we pray. Amen. This morning we have a point from each verse that we need to consider about consumerism and the heart of the Christian. And the first is this, the futility of of consumerism. From verse 10, the futility of consumerism. I'll read it again. The one who loves silver is never satisfied with silver, and whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with income. This, too, is futile. Your translation in front of you might replace silver with money, as that is what the Hebrew word itself is getting at. The one who loves money, who is consumed by it, will find themselves never satisfied by it. This is what Solomon, or the preacher, as he's called throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, is telling us. And he repeats the idea in the second clause of this very verse. And whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with income. So it's not just the love of money, but the love of amassing wealth. You will still never be satisfied with what is coming in. And then how does he describe it? He says, this is futile. Other translations of that word throughout Ecclesiastes will say vanity, and really that word is really difficult to translate, but I lean towards futile and really towards an enigma. It is frustratingly difficult to understand. And Solomon says this throughout a variety of topics in Ecclesiastes, topics such as life and death, money and possessions, why the evil seem to flourish and the righteous suffer, really all things. So here we have the wisest man to walk the earth apart from Christ, and he seeks to apply his God-given wisdom to the various issues that we all face on earth. And he concludes that much of it is an enigma. It's really difficult to understand the depths of what is happening in the world. And this makes sense. 
We are finite creatures. We ourselves are not God. We can't understand how all of the points go together. But what I find interesting is that Solomon says this particularly about those who love money, those who love amassing wealth. He says that what is characterizing that pursuit is that it is futile. Why? Because those who end up getting more money, more often than not, Solomon writes, are still never satisfied. The self-comparison never ends. The problem with gaining more money is that our sinful hearts always still want more. The target point or the bullseye of contentment is always moving for us. We've never arrived. The pursuit of more is endless. And this is important because more often than not, the struggles with consumerism are grounded in a desire for more money, a love for it. Well, if I just had more, then I could buy this or that. If I just had more, then I could keep up with the Joneses over there. Or even in Christian circles, God, if I just had more, then I could actually give more. So much for the sacrificial side of giving. Even in my own sinful heart, I remember praying a few years ago, Lord, just let me win the lottery. Do you know how many people I could bless with that? That's really difficult if I've never even bought a lottery ticket. So allow me to say this. The Bible has a lot to say about money, both the love of it and the snares of it, everything in between. But you all know the statistics. According to the Foundation of Economic Education, the poorest 20% of Americans are richer than the vast majority of what is considered an affluent nation. The poorest 20% are richer. The reality, friends, is that many of us in this room are not in that poorest 20%. So what I'm simply saying here is that we need to seriously heed the Bible's warnings about the love of money. We need to wrestle with those and examine our motives and our passions and how consumerism has infiltrated even our own lives. We need to heed Jesus' warnings about why it can be really difficult for the rich to enter into the kingdom of heaven. We have to wrestle with those. But hear me here. I want you to make a lot of money. The Bible doesn't say making a lot of money is sinful. It says that the love of money and the love of making more and more money is sinful. So I truly do want you to make a lot of money, but not for the sake of just hoarding it, but so that you can give it away, so that you can support local churches and church plants near and far, so that you can support the missionaries who are going to the nations, so that you can support the work of ministries that are training up indigenous pastors and teachers, so that you can give to the advancement of God's kingdom. I want you to truly live out and experience and realize that it is really better to give than to receive. That Christians should truly be the most generous people on the face of the earth, seeking to bless others, to give freely, to live a sacrificial life. Why? What is the grounding? How can we do that? Because God, in giving us Jesus Christ, has so generously blessed us that it enables us to live in that manner. That's the true blessing of having wealth. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus instructs those listening that where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So listen, it is great to financially plan. That is a wise thing to do. It is great to save and to have savings. It is great to leave money to your kids and your grandkids, as the Proverbs tells us. But heed Jesus' warning here. Don't put your hope in that. 
Don't just leave them money. Leave them a legacy of faithfulness. Let them see how you give what you have. Let your children and your grandchildren observe that. Leave them a legacy of faithfulness. We desire ultimately because we do not have. That's the reality. And when that happens, it blinds us to what we already do have, what we have been blessed with. And when that happens, then our tra- tragically our hearts become hardened to thankfulness to God for what he has blessed us with, which leads us to desire more it, in order that we never stop. We never stop wanting more. And it just never ends, the cycle of consumerism. That is the futility of consumerism, that it never ends. Secondly, we need to see the lie of consumerism. The lie of consumerism. Verse 11, when good things increase, the ones who consume them multiply. What then is the profit to the owner except to gaze at them with his eyes? Common knowledge, right, if you're reasoning here as you read this verse, common knowledge would often dictate that a good thing increasing would bring about greater joy and contentment and happiness. When good things increase, other good things should increase, right? Well, this verse takes a turn the other way. This is the lie of consumerism. We want to believe that as we gain more and more money or items or prestige, that the goodness of our life increases, but that is not the case. Solomon writes, when good things increase, the ones who consume them multiply. The more we make, the more we tend to spend. And for Solomon and for us, the accumulation of goods in his day and age, and really our day and age, whether it be land or grain for him and animals or gold or something else, that signified a good thing. That was what was deemed prosperous. You were prosperous if you had a lot of those things. But Solomon turns from those good things, and he says, when all of this increases, so do those who consume them, who want them, who desire them. And he would know this better than most. The first 10 chapters of the book of 1 Kings outlines just how expansive his kingdom and his wealth had become. And the truth in his day was that as he became more and more rich, he had more and more mouths to feed and people to provide for and projects to fund and soldiers to equip. In other words, this is what we all need to wrestle with, there's often a weight and a burden of responsibility that those who have excess experience as they gain their wealth. They end up so consumed by other things that they cannot truly enjoy what they've already been blessed with. And Solomon concludes in the second line of verse 11 there by saying, with all this responsibility and increase in people needing to consume, what does it ultimately profit the owner? He never truly enjoys what he has because he's always worrying about how to pay for this or that or provide for this person or that. And so sadly, Solomon writes, he just gazes at the wealth with his eyes. How pitiful is that? I imagine him looking out from the balcony of his palace, the most exalted king on the face of the earth at this time. He's looking out over his fields and his thousands of head of cattle. He has a peaceful kingdom and thousands of servants and soldiers, and yet he's still simply worrying about tomorrow, worrying about all that he has to do, not enjoying the day. And so he writes, what is the ultimate profit to the owner 
except to just gaze at it. During college, I got to go on a missions trip to Paris, France. And I say missions because there was a lot more of just a trip happening than actual missions work, but that's a conversation for a different day. But one of the days, we got to go see the palace at Versailles, which has this amazing expanse of gardens. It was truly awesome to see. But our guide talked about how many kings and queens of past sought to build these lavish gardens as not only a display of their wealth, but as a place to escape the stresses of the day. Think on that for a moment. In other words, they had to build something to enjoy because nothing else that their wealth had brought them would bring them enjoyment. And I thought of that trip and all of the expenses that Louis XIV had to spend and ultimately man's search for rest and respite and meaning and peace as I read this remark from a pastor in England in the 1800s. He wrote, The poorest artisan in Rome, walking in Caesar's garden, had the same pleasures himself which ministered to his master, ministered to Caesar. The birds made him as good of music. The flowers gave him as sweet of smiles. He there sucked as good of air and delighted in the beauty and order of the place for the same reason and for the same perception as Caesar himself, save only that Caesar paid for all that pleasure, vast sums of money, the blood and treasure of a province, which the poor man had to pay nothing for. And we instinctively know this to be true. It doesn't matter if you drive to the top of the Tetons and behold the view in a $100,000 Range Rover or the $1,900 Buick LeSabre with a broken front bumper out there in the parking lot. You're still beholding a magnificent view. So this serves as a warning to us. Let us heed the refrain of Ecclesiastes to enjoy laughter and the good in our numbered days. For the Christian, our wealth does not affect our happiness or our contentment in life. Realize that. This very week, we celebrate the greatest joy this world can know in the birth of Jesus Christ. Let us rejoice in that. Yes, there are many Christmas traditions and the busyness of the holiday routines and times with family members and times with spouses, family members that we just might have to fight to be joyful at. I'm really not trying to get in trouble here, but my beautiful wife is looking. (laughs) But to my Christian brothers and sisters here, we of all people, we of all people have a reason to rejoice, no matter what we have. It's been a hard and a frustrating year for many of us. But let's not allow our eyes to glaze over as we gaze at the miracle of Christmas at the riches that God has blessed us with in Christ. What are those riches? Ephesians 1, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what is the wealth of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Meditate this very week on that glorious inheritance. We of all people don't have to buy the lie that consumerism tries to offer us. It promises a joy and a happiness that is temporary at best. We have an eternal inheritance that never fades, that moth and rust cannot destroy, that ultimately cannot be taken from us. Rest in that. Marvel at it this very week. Marvel at that God saved us. He saved us. We of all people, He saved us. He calls us sons and daughters. 
May our eyes never gaze over this amazing truth without being moved. May our hearts never grow dull to this reality that is now ours in the riches that we have in Christ. He saved us. May we rest in that inheritance in the midst of everything trying to vie for our time and our attention and our money. May we rest in the inheritance that can never be taken away. So let us resist and flee from the subtle lies of consumerism. We have something and ultimately someone infinitely better. Lastly, we need to see the effect of consumerism. Verse 12, the effect of consumerism. The sleep of the worker is sweet, whether he eats little or much, but the abundance of the rich permits him no sleep. So what is the effect of this consumerism that we can be trapped by or that we partake in? This love of money and this love of just building more and more wealth and having our desires and our hopes set on that instead of on God. What is the lasting effect? We have no rest. Those who work hard during the day, though, Solomon says, the worker Solomon's calling here, really the man or woman who works unto God and finds thankfulness for what God has provided and seeks to be faithful with what they have, their sleep, their rest, more often than not, is sweet. It is a good rest. They're not plagued by anxiety as it relates to what tomorrow holds or what their money is doing for them, but they are able to find a sweet rest. Meanwhile, the abundance of the rich, Solomon writes, permits him no sleep. Why? There's always something else to worry about. Always another bill to pay. Always something else to fix or change. Those very truths we see to be self-evident in our own culture. There's always something else to have. There's always more to have. And so it never ends. The cycle just goes on and on. So how do we apply this to our hearts? I think all of us in here understand that consumerism is futile. It never ends in searching for something else. There's always something else that we could have to bring us happiness. We understand, I think, that it's a lie that it promises to give us something yet never really delivers on it. And I think we're all seeing that the lasting effect of it is that it brings us no rest, no true peace to your life. So how should we understand and apply these things to our lives? I would like to give you two things to leave with, a warning to the church overall about consumerism, and then an exhortation in light of it. First, a warning for the church. At the beginning of the sermon, we defined consumerism as the never-ending desire to possess material goods and to achieve personal success. What this has brought about then is that if something or someone does not aid in our own determined personal success, then that thing or that person is deemed not worthy of our time. Sadly, this has infiltrated many minds that come into a church. Jesus is now seen as something to be added to our lives in order to help us achieve that, that own self-determined view of personal success. People and things are only valuable based on what they can do for us now. God, then, is only valuable based on what he can do for us. The church overall is only valuable based on what it can provide for us. We determine in consumerism what is valuable based on what we can fit into our lives and what ultimately helps us in one way or another. So what's the problem with the church? 
In the last 30 to 40 years, the rise of the seeker-sensitive churches came about. Pastors can now function as spiritual baristas who offer up something that you like and always have you leaving church feeling warm and happy. Let's stay away from the reality of sin and Jesus' call to repentance. That can come across a little harsh. Churches then have adopted this mentality in seeking to cater to everyone. Let's play three songs max and not have a specific time of reading or prayer. Hymns have too much theological language. We should stay away from those. The pastor's sermon should be no longer than 20 minutes because that's the max attention span these days. The kids' ministry should probably have a merry-go-round in the center of it and teach them just enough about Jesus so mom or dad doesn't have to talk about him at home. I kid you not, when, we, when I was a kid, we visited a church where there was a merry-go-round in the center of it and then a two-story slide from the top. We went for months. I remember nothing else but those two things. <laughs> the youth, youth ministry, excuse me, should be fun enough that the students want to come, but not too serious that they couldn't ever bring friends. Everything has to be cool and hip and young these days, whatever that means. And when all of this is taking place and we're doing that well, then we are told that we have a church that knows how to reach people. A church that people actually want to attend. A church that has satisfied the consumeristic tendencies of its people. But what if God's main priority isn't our happiness or how he can fit into our lives? What if his first concern isn't for how you feel about him? What if God cares most about his glory, his fame, and his name amongst the nations? What if God is for God? What if lives of holiness actually do produce happiness? What if God's just not another thing we can purchase in this world, but actually the life-altering reality who calls for our faith and our obedience and our love? What if your sin was so heinous in his eyes that he had to send his son to die for it? And what if the gathering of the church is primarily for the believer and not the unbeliever? What if God commands us to worship and when we have been given new hearts, we actually love to do it? What if we understand God's word to actually be God's real words and then delight, therefore, in hearing it preached and taught and proclaimed? What if the church isn't here to meet your needs, but actually here to make disciples? What if the church is a body and you are called to use your God-given gifts to serve it and to build it up? What if the family of God is to have the utmost importance in your life? Would that then change how we think about God and his church? So my warning after my long diatribe is this. Beware of how consumerism can so easily infiltrate your relationship with God and your view of the church. Beware of those two things. God exists for his glory, not for ours. The church exists for God's glory and satisfaction, not for ours. Beware of how consumerism wants you to view your relationship with God or the church. Consumerism wants you to make your faith in Christ as something to be used for gain. I'm going to say that again. Consumerism wants to make your faith in Christ as something to be used for gain. Christianity's claim is that we count all as lost in this world for the sake of knowing Christ and making him known. So let us heed the warning that consumerism presents to the church. And lastly, real quick, an exhortation for the church. If you would, please flip forward in your Bibles to Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12. I want to end our look on consumerism with an exhortation 
from the parable of the rich fool. Luke chapter 12, starting in verse 13. Someone from the crowd said to him, this is Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Friend, he said to him, who appointed me a judge or arbitrator over you? He then told them, watch out and be on guard against all greed, because one's life is not in, his abundant, in the abundance of his possessions. Then he told them a parable, verse 16, a rich man's land was very productive. He thought to himself, what should I do since I don't have anywhere to store my crops? I will do this, he said. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones and store all my grain and my goods there. Then I'll say to myself, you have many goods stored up for many years. Take it easy. Eat, drink, and enjoy yourself. Verse 20, but God said to him, you fool. This very night your life is demanded of you, and the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? Jesus' words, that's how it is with the one who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So what is the exhortation? Simply this, be rich toward God. Be rich towards God. There is something markedly different about us from the rest of the world, about the Christian from the rest of the world. We have hope. We have grace. We have truth. All because of the blessings that God through Jesus Christ has poured out on us. And we realize that in this Christian life, we are called to bear fruit in many ways, but consumerism is a serious enemy to fruitfulness. We then should heed the call to be rich towards God. Resist the pull for just one more thing and seek to give one more thing. Don't hear me here incorrectly. I'm not saying we all need to be minimalist. I think that's going too far the other way. Because the reality is, as we said earlier, he did make us to consume. He made us as consumers, and that's a good thing, but all the things that the world wants us to consume will never satisfy. All our possessions will never truly fill us. So what is the response? Let us feast on Christ. That's old Puritan language, I know, but let us feast on Christ. Let us consume more and more of him. May we awaken a more powerful hunger for Jesus and see how that is our primary defense against the idolatry of having more or trying to be more. Our affections must be stirred up for Jesus, and we must recognize that the cross has freed us from the idolatry and the gnawing pain of wanting more. May we believe that he cares for us immensely. He will provide for all of our needs. May we be rich towards him as an act of gratefulness and thankfulness. Christ Community Church, may you have the most blessed Christmas this week, even in the midst of a hard year, remembering, though, what God through Christ has done for you. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you so much for you. I thank you for the reality that we serve a God who is and who is there. I thank you that you have not stayed afar, but you have revealed yourself through your word and ultimately through the person of your son, Jesus Christ. And God, we recognize, living in an affluent nation, that there are things in your word that we do have to wrestle with. And I pray now that your Holy Spirit would simply convict us and encourage us in the midst of our hearts on where we need convicting and where we need encouraging. I pray that we would recognize the subtle ways that consumerism seeks to 
infect our lives. And I pray more than anything that we would recognize how the gospel sets us free from those lies and ultimately the futility of it. May we worship you in spirit and in truth now. In your son's name we pray. Amen.